Today we're answering the question, how are you righteous before God? This mini-series is called The Fundamental Blessing of the Gospel. See, we live in a day where we have to get our thinking and our theology right quite often to counter the barrage of false teachings. And while these false teachings may not be new, historically speaking, they do come repackaged and their aim is to get us off course and doubting our Savior's miraculous salvation. Let's look at part three of the fundamental blessing of the gospel. Here's John. Go back to Revelation chapter six now. Let's look at chapter six, verses 12 through 17. And this is what John says. He says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and every island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders in the rich and the strong and every slave and, and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Look in verse 16. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us. Why did they say this? Because, he says, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? What John gives us here in Revelation 6 is a glimpse into the final judgment when Christ, the triumphant king, returns again. Verse 17, look at this. For the great day of the wrath has come. And here's the question. And who is able to stand? The scripture reading from Malachi chapter 3 this morning. Verse 2, who can endure his coming? Who is able to stand on that great day? Who is able to stand? This is the fundamental question that Advent confronts us with. Ask yourself this question. Who is able to stand? Who can endure the coming of the wrath of the Lamb? Scoffers say there is no hell. Scoffers say there is no judgment. Scoffers like to say there is no accountability. But the scriptures tell us there is a day fixed when Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. There is a day when all of us will appear before the coming of Christ. You can't escape it. The scripture readings that you heard this morning from the gospel reading with all those big names that, that are hard to pronounce, right? Why does Luke put all that stuff in there? Because he's trying to tell you, listen carefully, the gospel's not a philosophical idea. The gospel is an historical fact. And these people that he's writing about, Jesus came, and you can go back and check the historical record. Just 
as Jesus came the first time in history, which is historically verifiable. The second coming of Christ isn't like this, this um, uh, pipe dream, this uh, fantasy movie idea. It's going to happen. It is reality. No one can escape it. And the question is, when that day comes, who can endure the coming of the great wrath of the Lamb of God? Who is able to stand? We find this, this, this concept of standing all throughout Scripture. In fact, for example, in the book of Psalms, the Psalms opens with this theme. Psalm chapter 1, verse 5, it, the, the, the book of Psalms opens with this sobering statement, the wicked, listen carefully, Psalm 1, verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Do you hear that? The wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Listen to Psalm 24, verse 3. Who who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand, right, in his holy place? So the, the, the assumption is who can stand in the, in the presence of God's holiness and survive it? Who can, who can be in the presence of God safely and securely? Psalm 76, verse 7, you, even you are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? Listen to Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, oh, Lord, who could stand? Listen to what the prophet Nahum in Nahum chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, which is where Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17 is taken from. Listen to what the prophet says. It says, mountains quake because of him. And it says, the hills dissolve, indeed the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. And, and of course, our scripture reading from today, from Malachi chapter 3, who can endure his coming? Who can stand on that great day? You see, this is all over scripture. This is the fundamental question that we have to be able to answer now concerning Christ's second coming because this question gets to the core issue of the gospel in the Christian faith, namely justification, which is the fundamental blessing of the gospel. Who is justified? We looked at this. And the, the good news is, as the Bible says, sinners God justifies the ungodly. Aren't you grateful for that? God declares righteous those who are inherently unrighteous. That is scandalous. And yet it's our great hope. Who justifies? God. God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 33, God is the one who justifies. Why does God justify anyone? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, God justifies sinners being justified as a gift by his grace. So we can never say, well, God owes, we can never say, God, God owes me, God owes me. Because we do not work for our salvation. It's a gift by his grace. What makes justification possible? Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 25. Paul says that God can justly justify sinners because of the redemption and propitiation that Jesus accomplished by his shedding of his blood for us on the cross. Jesus is our redemption. Jesus is our propitiation. In other words, what Paul is telling us here, Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus has satisfied fully the penalty of God's law that stood against us. And that's how justification can be possible. This brings us to our fifth principle or lesson about the truth of justification. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And this is it. Here's the question. What is the result of justification? What is the result? Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, in beginning verse 1. He says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited, imputed, reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is his due. But the one, to the one who does not work, but believes. Do you see that distinction right there? To the one who does not work, but believes. That is unequivocally telling us that faith is not a work. Listen, but the one who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, thank goodness, his faith is reckoned, credited, imputed as righteousness. What does this imputing, what does this credited mean? It's an accounting term. So for example, if I took a trip, for example, to Europe, and I was over in Europe, and my bank account went empty, and I have to pick up the phone, and I'm uh, say I'm like a student on a student visa studying in college, and I've got to pick up the phone, because this happens to me and Catherine all the time with our three kids in college. Dad, I don't have any money. <laughs> I need some money. And so we get our Venmo and we transfer money. We credit, we impute money to their empty account so that it's filled back up. <laughs> and then the, my account goes this way. <laughs> so that's what happens in justification. We are ungodly and our account is actually less than empty, it's negative. And Jesus, who is the treasury of merit for us in heaven with his perfect righteousness says, by faith, when you trust me, I'll credit my merit to you and fill up your account full, not just so that it can be depleted when you sin, but stay like that forever justified. 
That is imputation. That's what Paul says here. When you by faith trust Jesus, he reckons to your account righteousness. Now listen. He gives us two examples of those who are ungodly, Abraham and David. That's why we don't teach our children in this church examples to be like David, because you might have to reread the life of David and say, which parts do you want to be like? <laughs> and you have to really tone it down because it is X-rated. You know, it's like, you can't be like David. Don't do that. Paul says, here's the example of two ungodly people. Here's how you use David and Abraham as examples. They're ungodly whom God justified, just like us. Just as David also speaks of the blessing, of the blessing on, whom man, on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed, blessed. What it means to be blessed, it comes from the ironic blessing. It means to come under the divine favor of God. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Paul tells, what is the result of justification? Paul tells us that the result of justification, which is Christ the judge's end-time verdict rendered now in the present, from his courtroom is the complete and total eternal forgiveness of sins. David speaks of the blessing on man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. What sins do you think David had in mind when he said this? Adultery, murder, and a failed father and a failed king. He failed in his vocation as a king. He failed in his vocation as a father. He failed as a Christian. He failed as a husband. He was a complete and utter failure. And he said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose adultery and murder and failure as a father and failure as a king the Lord will not take into account. I don't know about you, but I don't like that. Because if you have been married and your spouse may have committed unfaithfulness to you, I've had to deal with that. And counsel couples with that. It's horrific. And you're saying God just lets them go. He doesn't count it to them. That's what the gospel says. There's lots of things you have to work through and all that. But my point is, is Christ justifies the ungodly. The complete forgiveness of sins is the answer to the question, who is able to stand on that great day when Christ returns? The complete and total forgiveness of sins is the answer to the question which runs throughout the whole Bible, who is able to stand on that great day when Christ, the triumphant king, returns? 
At every baptism, we confess our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. And this is what we confess. We, we confess saying, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. So what does it mean to believe in the forgiveness of sins? We're going to confess it in the words of the Nicene Creed this morning. What does it mean to believe in the forgiveness of sins? Because of Christ's satisfaction, his redemption, his propitiation. This is what it means to have your sins forgiven. God will no longer remember your sins nor your sinful nature against which you have to struggle your whole life. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 103, verses 2 and 3 and verse 10. Bless the Lord, O my soul, who pardons all your iniquities, who he has not dealt with us according to our sins. Aren't you grateful for that today? Listen carefully. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. He hasn't rewarded us according to our iniquities. My rewards are abundant for my iniquity. And he hasn't rewarded me. Because of Christ's satisfaction, God graciously, as Paul says here, imputes to us the righteousness of Christ so that we may never come into condemnation ever again. One of my favorite sections in the whole Bible is Romans 7, verse 21 through chapter 8, verse 1. Because Paul is a justified believer who is lamenting deeply that he struggles with his sinful nature throughout his life and he often fails. How'd you like to have that for an interview for a pastor for your church? Well, tell us, but sometimes when people ask me this question, I hate this question, by the way. How's your walk with the Lord going? How's your, how's your walk going? I hate that question. I just take it right to this passage and say, well, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do all the time. <laughs> and that's Paul, and I'm so grateful for that because, listen, he tells us here that though we struggle with our sinful nature throughout our whole life and often fail because we have been forgiven, Romans chapter 4, what you just heard, there he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When I sin as a justified believer, it's, there's no condemnation for that sin because he's not counting those against me. He's not remembering them. He's not holding them against me. There's no charge there. By God's law, we're going to come back to that. We have to hear this good news over and over again, don't we? Just this past week, as I was uh, praying and thinking about this Sunday and reading through these scriptures and lamenting my own life, I received a prayer request on social media from somebody who wrote to me, and this is what they wrote to me following their concern about their ongoing struggle with their sinful nature. And this is what they said. They said, quote, pray for me. I'm having a horrible day. I still struggle so much to functionally rest in Christ, and the enemy 
torments me with my shame. This prayer request could be made by all of us. As a justified believer, who we are filled with the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin and our shortcomings and our failures to live up to God's law, the law that we love but we just can't keep perfectly, the devil comes and reminds us, the, 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 great, the great accuser of the brethren comes and reminds us, oh, look what you did. Look what you said. Look what you thought. Look how you behaved. Look at your terrible attitude. And you just feel shame. And you just get paralyzed and you just sit there in, in grief and you go, gosh. You see, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul. If you're troubled in soul this morning, you're in the right place at the right time for the right reason. These purple Advent pyramids, I think they're beautiful, don't you? I love pyramids. Just makes the place look better. I mean, if, look, it would look like this. I mean, it's okay, but... You know, it's just me and my legs and that. That's much better. <laughs> yes, that's much better. It was worth our money and our church budget for that. Listen, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor in spirit and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. The psalmist, as I told you, in Psalm 130, verse 3, says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Keep reading the verses. Listen to verse 4. He answers his own question in the next verse. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Don't be troubled about fear here. That's a filial fear. That's not a slavish fear. Slavish fear is what we're going to come back to in Revelation 6. Filial fear is just, I don't want to offend my fathers. I love him. I reverence him so much. I don't want to disappoint him. <clears throat> if he should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you. It's not that he doesn't mark your iniquities. So what's the result of justification? You can stand. As those who are justified, even in our present struggles and failures, God, for Christ's sake, doesn't mark our iniquities. He forgives them all. Walter Marshall, in his wonderful book, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, says, when God justifies you, he not only removes your guilt and your punishment, he also removes your fault. He clears your fault because it is a pardon grounded upon justice. What is the justice? Christ's redemption and propitiation. He, he fulfilled justice. He fulfilled the penalty that stood against us. We go into God's courtroom and Jesus is our advocate. He's our defense attorney. And he tells the father, not guilty here, no fault. And not just that, but he says, I've given to him my righteousness by, the, by faith, the gift of faith. And he says, not only not guilty, righteous, perfect law keeper. 
This is what the Apostle Paul proclaims this good news to the people in the synagogue in Antioch and Pisidia in Acts 13, verse 39. Listen carefully to what Paul says here. This is astounding. He says, by him we are justified from all the things with which the law charges us. God's law charges each and every one of us with every single failure. Because what does James say? If you break God's law in one point, you're guilty of what? The whole thing. By him, by Christ, we are justified from all the things with which God's law charges us. Listen. When you're in Christ and you're justified, God's law doesn't find anything in you to charge guilty. Do you hear that? To those who are justified, your sins are totally forgiven. This is the amazing result of being justified. As I said, justification involves two aspects, the complete forgiveness of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. What does that mean? Let me say it like this. When we're justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, listen, we're not just declared not guilty, not, not a lawbreaker, because the penalty of God's law has been satisfied but when we're justified, we're also declared by Christ the judge righteous, a perfect law keeper because the precepts of God's law have been perfectly kept by Christ for us. And so as you've heard over and over and over in this church from Heidelberg Catechism, question 60, how are you righteous before God? The answer, listen again, because this never gets old, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, even though my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them, we all know what it feels like for our conscience just to burn guilt into us. We know what that feels like. And even though that's the case, yet God, without any merit of our own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. What is the result? So that it is as if I had never had committed any sin, nor had any sin, and as if I have myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me. That's just shocking, isn't it? So when we stand before God, if you're in Christ, forgiveness by its very nature implies that the penalty of the law has been satisfied, that the precepts of the law have been kept, and that your status is now as if you have kept the law perfectly. And so as we reflect this morning on the result of justification, the complete forgiveness of sins, we see that this is the answer to the question, who is able to stand? So as we conclude this morning, let me just ask you this question as we reflect on this wonderful benefit that we receive in Christ. 
when Christ returns, and he will, on whose record do you want to stand? Your record or Christ's? Amen. Listen, let's talk about, just in case you're not as convinced as Ollie, <laughs> praise God you are, right? Just in case you're thinking, maybe mine and Jesus's together, right? Let's talk about your record. I want you to think about your performance over the course of your life up to this point this morning. I want you to think about the thoughts, words, and deeds over this past week that you have done. Think about some of the thoughts that you have entertained and dwelt upon over and over that you shouldn't have. Think about some of the thoughts you should have dwelt upon, but you haven't. For example, Paul's exhortation in Philippians 4, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. What about the sins of commission? Think about some of the things that you have done that you shouldn't have done this past week. Think about the things that you should have done but failed to do this past week. Think about some of the words you have spoken to your spouse, to your children, to your friends. To your coworkers, think about some of the words that you have entertained called gossip or slander from other people and didn't act on it to stop it and correct it. Think, think about what you shouldn't have said. Think about what you shouldn't have said, have said to you. Think about some of the things that you should have spoken up and said but didn't say. How's your record? The good news of the gospel is this. You don't have to stand before God on your record, on your performance. Now contrast your performance in thought, word, and deed with Christ's performance, his righteousness. Here's how one author puts it. Let's pause and think of what it meant for, the, for Jesus to obey for us in our place. For 30 years, he never once said or did anything wrong. More than that, at every single moment, he positively said and did exactly the right thing in the right way to the right degree. More than that, his obedience didn't just extend to his outward actions and words, his inner life was perfectly in line with God's law so that his thoughts and his feelings and his will and his desires and his reactions and his attitudes and his motives and his disposition, not once, not for so much as a millisecond was there an infinitesimal lapse in his performance. That is good news. 
And that's the good news that the gospel announces to us. The gospel announces that we have a Savior who has done everything that needs to be done in thought, word, and deed for us and for our salvation. He has fully satisfied justice by, listen, not just dying in our place, but also living in our place. He has satisfied the penalty of God's law by, Paul says, being a redemption and propitiation for us on the cross. And he has fulfilled all the precepts of God's law by living his life for us in our place and on our behalf. So what is the result? We don't have to be like those that we read of in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, who out of great fear when Christ returns, listen to what they did. This is slavish fear. When Christ returns, John says, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? They cannot stand. And they hide in fear just like, where does this come from? Just think, where, you, where did two people who broke God's law immediately hide in fear when the presence of God came among them? At and Eve. They couldn't stand before God. But in contrast to those who are justified now, we can look forward to Christ's return with great confidence and, and sing like our, like Sierra and the, and the music team led us to sing this morning, Oh, glorious day. Why? Because, listen, Paul says in Romans 5 verse 1, Listen to what we know. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with him now. That's not a spa-like quality it's talking about. He's talking about polit politics. He's talking about a great king who is at war with his enemies has come to peaceful terms with them. Having been justified by faith, we can stand before God then in the final judgment with confidence because the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 18, he says, by this love, and that love refers to verses 9 and 10 where he says, Jesus became a propitiation for us sent by the Father. He says, this love is perfected with us so that we may have, listen, confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world now. What does that mean? Righteous, justified. There's no fear in love because the perfect love of God in the gospel, whom Christ was a propitiation for us, casts out fear of judgment because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears has not been perfected in love, has not received this comfort of the gospel because they're fearing, they're hiding from the presence of the lamb who is to come. In contrast, John says those who are trusting Christ now have great confidence. 
Let's just finish. I want to finish this morning uh, with this doxology of great joy from Jude that we often share here in the church, Jude 24 and 25. Listen to what Jude writes. He says, now to him who is able, that's his power, to keep you from stumbling, that is to eventually fall away from the faith and not make it, to persevere. To him who by his power has the ability to keep you from finally falling away, from stumbling. To him who is able with the power to make you stand. You see that? To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand. He makes you stand by his great power through Christ in the gospel. He makes you stand. Listen, and how do you stand when Christ returns? In the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Now contrast that with the book of Revelation. Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come, and who is able to stand? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. What a contrast. This wonderful doxology reminds us of God's grace and power. He will, Jude says, keep us. He will guard us from falling away. He will keep us and make us stand in the presence of his glory with blamelessness and great joy. What is the result of justification? The total forgiveness of sins. What is the result of the complete forgiveness of sins? You, when Christ returns, will not only stand and endure his coming, but you will be blameless. What does that word mean? Faultless. God's law finds nothing in you, nothing to charge you of, nothing. You are faultless. You are blameless. You are perfectly righteous. You're without blame. What an amazing thought that when Christ returns, we can be found without any fault, none. By his grace and power, he's able to make us stand in ourselves like these people in Revelation. We should shrink back from his glorious presence in fear. God sets us before his glorious presence. Do you see that? He takes us and he makes us stand before his glorious presence. Go back to the Old Testament. If you even touched the ark, what happened? Right on the spot, you drop dead. You don't drop dead. You stand with no fault, and you have great joy. He sets us before his glorious presence without fault, and he makes us stand because we're justified God's law has nothing to charge us with. There are no charges can be made against us for those who trust in his spotless son. As Paul says in Romans 8, verses 33 and 34, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also 
intercedes for us. This is the hope of Advent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this breathtaking, almost too good to be true, good news of the result of being justified. We confess that in of ourselves we should shrink back in great fear from your glorious presence, but because we are trusting in your Son, we look to his perfect satisfaction. We look to his perfect life, his perfect death, his burial, his resurrection. He is our righteousness. He covers us and makes us stand safely. And so who is able to stand? It is those who are trusting in your son. And may we trust in him today. And as we come now to your table, comfort every weary heart. Comfort and alleviate every fearful heart. Every cautious, calculating heart. Take all that away and help us to have a a taste of what is to come today that we receive Christ and we stand in his presence with great joy receiving our salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Hymn We Proclaim podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't already for all our new episodes. And if this message was just what you needed to hear, please let us know in the comments and share it with a friend. 